way uh, through a sermon series on Daniel, and so today we'll be in Daniel 6. Before we jump into the, the text, though, um, let me share a quick story. I worked at a summer camp in Durango uh, the summer of 2005. It was um, during college. And uh, after the camp wrapped up for the summer, me and three guys that I worked with jumped in a car and we took a road trip around the West. I'd never really like done the great American West road trip thing. So three of us jumped in my sister's Honda Accord, okay, and uh, went from, uh, and and just took off and um, did this epic tour of the West. And it was basically terrible the whole time. I mean, we were committed to spending no money, zero money, a bunch of college kids driving around the West. So we, when we couldn't put down a tent, we like slept in our car at truck stops or whatever, you know, we um, had chocolate slim fast for breakfast. I don't know why we probably found a case of it on sale at Walmart before the trip or something. Um, We showered one time in two weeks, Uh, but we did jump in some oceans and rivers and lakes that sort of counts. And we covered a ton of ground, so much that we couldn't actually even enjoy all the places that we went. I don't know if you've ever been on a road trip like that. But we started in Durango, went to the Grand Canyon, Vegas, Yosemite, um, San Francisco, up to Seattle, across the skinny part of Idaho to Glacier National Park, down back through Utah to Arches, back to Durango, Colorado, and then I drove 16 hours home to Missouri. So it was something like over 6,000 miles in two weeks, and I still have to apologize to my sister when I returned the car to her after that summer. We saw, though, some of the most beautiful things in all of creation, right? I mean, just imagine that loop, everything you see on that loop. You saw, the, we see the Grand Canyon. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. We parked there in the dark at night, and we, when we woke up in the morning, we were on the edge. We were on the rim of the Grand Canyon at sunrise. We saw um, Half Dome in Yosemite. We saw El Capitan. But one of the coolest things that I saw, because I'd never seen anything quite like it before growing up in the Midwest, what were the sequoias in Northern California. I had never seen these things, and they are enormous. They're a force. They're 300 feet tall. They're 60 feet in diameter at the base. The oldest documented sequoia is over 3,000 years old. In other words, uh, there was a guy named David who was king of Israel at the time that it was a sapling. Okay, that's how old these trees are. They're among the oldest living things on earth, and they're a force. Just being in their presence makes you sort of see the world differently. You feel small. You feel temporary. You feel brief. Um, they don't do anything, they don't say anything, but they have the power to actually change the way you see yourself just by being in their presence. And uh, the way they became a force in the world, it was nothing fancy. It was nothing epic, um, even though they're epic now. It was actually a very mundane process that water plus soil plus CO2 plus some sunshine and you just hit repeat. Year after year after year. And over time, they become a presence. We could even say a a faithful presence over the long haul. Okay? I tell this story because this is how I want us to look at our passage this morning in Daniel 6. Through the lens of the sequoia. Okay? Through through the lens of faithful presence. So I'm going to read the first half of the chapter now. Second half in a minute. But if you would please follow along with me, I think the words will be on the screen. I'm going to read Daniel chapter 6. 
It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished among all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and they said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, the injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, Did you not just sign this injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast to the den of lions? The king answered, the thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you've signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, "Uh, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. All right, part one. The first thing we see in this famous chapter from Daniel's life is Daniel's faithful presence over a lifetime in exile. Now remember, Daniel was essentially kidnapped from his home in Jerusalem. Uh, He was brought to the major urban center of the world at that time, Babylon. He was enrolled in its top university as probably a 15, 16-year-old kid. And then he was asked to serve the kingdom that overtook his own nation for the rest of his life. It was a place uh, that was pluralistic religiously. It was filled with every conceivable belief and worldview and opinion about how we should live our lives. It was also a place driven by power, ambition, self-advancement. This was not an easy place to follow God, okay? This was not an easy place. But chapter 6 is the last story in Daniel's life that's recorded in this book. The rest of the book, 7 through 12, is this series of visions and dreams and prophecies. Things are about to get crazy. Um, Come back next week and then the week after that. So this story, which is the most famous from his life, is also, it's kind of a summary chapter of his whole life. It's looking back on all of his time 
in exile. And we find him here in chapter 6, serving the third different king and the second different empire since he arrived there as a teenager. He would now probably be 70 or 80 years old. He's an old man. He walks around with a cane. His whole life, he worked in civic government, politics, management for the city that had destroyed his own city. And so this description of Daniel in verses 1 through 5 is a beautiful testimony to his faithful presence over a lifetime. Daniel's life and work got better with age. He he finished stronger than he started. I was watching the end of the Boston Marathon a a week or two ago, and it's like these guys, they can just run every mile a little faster than the previous one until the kick at the end, it was a sprint to the finish, uh, Dora and I were watching it, and and these guys, they're just running at the end with joy, right? I mean, it's not even even like they're in pain. They're going so fast. Daniel's like that. His life was this marathon that every year got better and better, and the end of his life is just this joyful sprint to the finish. That kind of perseverance, that kind of longevity in the race of faith, it doesn't come from someone who's, who's faking it um, or concerned primarily with what others think about them. It comes from a year-in, year-out, authentic, vibrant faith in God. It comes from drinking in the nourishment of the gospel, of his promises. And over time, without any necessarily epic moments, just kind of day in, day out, the same thing year in, year out, over and over, Daniel stands as a force in Babylon. Uh, Nothing fancy, but eight decades in, he is a testament to God's goodness and his love. Those he works with can feel the density of his character. They, They can feel the gravitas of his integrity and his joy just by standing in his presence. Daniel's a sequoia. Uh, in a world where um, it's easy to be absent, there are many absences, he's a faithful presence. Look at what he was faithful to. He was, verse two, he was faithful to integrity. The, the king suffered no loss when Daniel was in charge. Daniel was incorruptible in a world filled with corruption, graft, bribery, you name it. Um, Daniel was the one who couldn't be bought. He was fearless. He was willing to tell the truth regardless of the situation. And all of this he did in service to the kingdom that took over his own homeland, right? He had their best interests in mind, even though he was taken there initially against his will. He was um, faithful in leadership, verse 3. He had an excellent spirit within him. Whatever task Daniel took up, he always did it with such excellence that everyone around him just sort of fell into rank and followed. It's like, well, let's just do it like Daniel's doing it. That seems to be the best way to do it. His, his mundane work for the city of Babylon, this is how it was summed up. And um, it said no ground for complaint or any fault uh, could be found because he was faithful. And that was coming from the enemies who were trying to destroy him. Okay, So think of the person who wants you to succeed least in the world giving you that sort of recommendation and that sort of a review, okay? Daniel was a man of integrity, of leadership, of excellence, but here's the key quality of Daniel's faithful presence that we need to see to understand his story. Daniel was faithful to the exclusive promises of the God of the Bible. Um, His motivation for diligence and faithfulness, it didn't come from this vague sense that like, well, 
probably everything in life will turn out okay. So I'll just put in my time and, and do it well. There's no reason to think that everything in life would turn out okay. He was a, basically a slave in a foreign city. Um, it wasn't a private faith that he held. He didn't say live and let live. Uh, it wasn't a pleasantry like your faith is good for you, mine's good for me. The important thing is we all have faith in something. You do you. That's not how Daniel went about his life, okay? Daniel believed it mattered what you put your trust and hope in. And he put his faith in the specific promises of the one and only God of the Bible. He believed that if any good was going to come to the world, including the city he lived in, Babylon, it was going to be through the one real God who poured out his blessings to the world. And it's this reason that he... um, Uh, every day went to his window and he prayed towards Jerusalem three times a day. That's not a command in the Bible. He didn't have to point that direction. He didn't need to open the window and have a clean sight line to his city. Prayers don't work that way, right? Our prayers get to God no matter what barriers stand in the way. So why did he do this? Three times a day without fail for decade after decade after decade. Daniel was establishing in his own life this sort of um, habit for his own soul. It's spiritual muscle memory, right? He, He did it as an aid to remember where his hope truly rests. His hope was in the God of Jerusalem, not in the gods of Babylon. He was faithful because he never abandoned the specific promises of the one true God. He was convinced that it was only through God of the Bible that any healing and hope would come to the world, but he was also present, right? He, he cared for and loved the city he found himself in. There were problems now and then in Babylon, okay? Just, you know, little stuff, little religious disagreements, like your boss commanding you to worship him and nobody else. You know, little stuff, the kind of stuff we all run into at work now and again. But Daniel loved his city and its people. The differences didn't make him afraid or angry, It didn't make him run away and retreat from the world. He was truly present, and he worked hard for their good. The way Tim Keller summarizes this, the life of Daniel, is he says, in short, Daniel was fair and broad in his sympathies and in his work for the common good of all. But he was exclusive in his devotion to the one true Lord of the world. The world is used to people with exclusive views of God being very exclusive in their love, right? That, that those who um, maybe believe in the God of the Bible are only concerned with other believers. Or the world is used to people with very broad concerns um, being, uh, being given to more general views of God, right? This sort of, you have your faith, I'll have my faith. They're surprised that someone with such a narrow view of God could be so broad in its concerns. Now, of course, the greatest example of this is of this unique and compelling combination of exclusivity and inclusivity wasn't Daniel, but the one that Daniel ultimately points to in the Bible. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so you can't get any more exclusive when it comes to religious belief than that. There is one door, and it's one man to heaven. That's the only way to know God and to be reconnected to God is through one man, Jesus Christ. It's one of the most exclusive claims ever made. But the very same person who made that was also the very person who gave the most inclusive command of love ever given. 
No one before Jesus had ever said, actually, I'm calling you to love your enemies. Not just your friends, not just your family, not just the people that you live near and kind of get along with, but the very people who are trying to undermine you, go love them. Never has there been such a combination of exclusive claims and inclusive love in the history of the world. That's faithful presence. I mean, what a testimony that would be for us at Grace Church. Think about that. For believers up and down this whole valley, imagine if we were known for this laser-focused, all-consuming worship and obedience to the one true and living God who's revealed himself in the Bible. That we stood out like sore thumbs in our community because of our devotion and love and obedience to God's word. And at the very same time, that worship led us to become the most generous, prodigal group of people in this valley in extending care and kindness far beyond our own circle of friends and family and church, that we were the most promiscuous with our love that anyone here knows. That was Daniel. That was Jesus. How do we grow up to be like them? Okay? How do we grow up to be like Daniel? God's faithful presence. The only way that we're ever going to grow into a faithful presence for our neighbors as we grow, is if we grow in our deep trust that God has been faithfully present to us in our lives first. All right? Look at what happens next in the life of Daniel, in the story of Daniel in chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 16 and finish our story here. <clears throat> so the king just commanded that Daniel be brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid at the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel and brought, were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. 
Um, when Daniel's colleagues, competitors, saw his unblemished character, his growing influence, and his joy for life, his faithful presence, instead of seeking an apprenticeship with him to like learn his ways, they sought to destroy him, didn't they? Why is that? Sin does that, okay? Sin does not like to be exposed and revealed for what it is. Sin it likes the shortcut. Sin is cheap. It's fake. It would rather hide in the dark and continue to make promises of hope and life while actually stealing your life. Sin is a parasite. It's, it's glowing with the stolen life of God's good world. And when sin stands in the presence of sequoias like Daniel, it's not drawn to them. It's not thankful for them. It doesn't praise God for them. It wants to chop them down because sequoias make them feel small. So through their conniving and manipulation, they managed to sentence Daniel to death by lions, uh, one of the more unique execution methods in history. But what happened to Daniel when he was dropped into his judgment and his darkness? Well, uh, one author I read put it this way. Daniel actually spent a far more comfortable night in the den of lions than the king spent in his royal palace, didn't he? The king couldn't even find sleep. Darius, in all his royal luxury, um, couldn't rest. And we can almost imagine the prophet leaning back on a warm, furry lion, sounds cozy, conversing for hours with the angel about heavenly things until he was so rudely interrupted by Darius's question the next morning, right? His lodging that night turned out to be a den of angels, not a den of lions, God's faithful presence to Daniel in what should have been his darkest hour didn't only save his life, but it actually ushered him into into a foretaste of heaven. I mean, he brought heaven down into the darkest, most dangerous moments of Daniel's life. In the Old Testament, uh, lions almost always express the disharmony and the chaos and the danger and the violence of our broken world. So in the Psalms, when you're in danger, you're often described as being um, surrounded by lions or among the lions. But in the promised age to come in heaven, the promise that we have with Jesus forever, Isaiah tells us that the lions will lie down with the lambs, right? And little children shall lead them. They'll just grab hold of their mane like a little pet and just lead the lion around. See, the universe will be restored. The danger will be removed. Daniel's deliverance is a foretaste of heaven. He felt what heaven will be like. Do you see the gospel right here? Do you see how God dropped a little picture of his love and his promise for the world right into Daniel's story? The darkest places on earth, the most fearful moments of our lives, the the despair that we feel in judgment or guilt when we've been judged is exactly where God brings the restoring power of heaven and a taste of what it will be like to live with him forever. This story points us to the hope that we need the most in the world. We actually need someone even greater than Daniel to come into the darkness with us. And Daniel's descent into the pit of lions is an arrow, a big old arrow, pointing us directly to Jesus, the true and final faithful presence of God for the whole world. Consider a couple similarities real quick, and just let me know if you think this is on accident, okay? So um, two righteous men are accused by an unrighteous, manipulative, 
jealous men vying for the acclaim and the influence that they didn't have. All right? Both were brought before rigged trials and um, <clears throat> overseen by a sympathetic but ultimately powerless ruler. Both found to be totally righteous and innocent, but both were con- condemned to death anyway. Both were thrown into a dark tomb, covered with a rock, and even sealed with the official insignia of the power of that day. And both emerged at dawn as the sun rose unharmed, having experienced the presence of God when they should have been in darkness. What's the only difference between Jesus and Daniel? The only difference is that Daniel wasn't killed when he entered that grave, but Jesus was. He was swallowed by the darkness of this world. See, the perfect son of God entered the darkness of the world and he allowed it to destroy him so that we would never have to be destroyed by it, not truly. As 1 Corinthians puts it, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes our death sentence so that he can give us heaven in return. Because when Jesus rose from death, this is what we talked about last week, this is what Christianity is all about, heaven broke in to our dark world. And Daniel experienced heaven for a night. He got to lay back on the lions, rest, enjoy it. Um, But when he got pulled out the next morning, he went right back in that dark, hard world, didn't he? But when Jesus rose from death, something eternal stayed in this world. Heaven is here with us through the presence of Jesus, applying it to us through his Holy Spirit. God's faithful presence in this world through Jesus in our lives. So what? If this is true, okay, and imagine that it's really true. Imagine that a whole new kind of life and living hope has been raised from death and is present and active in our dark world, bringing heaven to all the places we need it the most. Imagine it's true. The presence of God is here through Jesus. What does this mean for us? Well, we saw what it meant for Daniel. What does it mean for us? Um, In the same way that God sent his people into Babylon to pray for it, to work for the good and the peace and the shalom of that city, God still sends his people into the world to be a faithful presence for him wherever they are. He even sends you and me, right? He even sends the normal people that have gathered here in this church this morning. Uh, James Davidson Hunter is a sociologist at the University of Virginia, and he wrote a book called To Change the World. And in it, he says this, faithful presence puts the question this way. What if Christians, rather than triumphantly determining to transform the culture or apocalyptically seeking to protect themselves from it, um, or, uh, sorry, or determining to transform the culture or apocalyptically seeking to protect themselves from it by running away, sought instead to be fully and redemptively present within it. What if we were known not for seeking to win the culture wars as Christians, but for seeking to bring peace and love to our neighbors, to the place where we lived? What would it look like if Grace Church could bring the peace of heaven that Jesus won for us in the resurrection to our little slice of the Western Slope here in Colorado? To close out our time, here are a few threads to get us started, just ideas. There's no possible way we can exhaustively answer this question. It would mean being faithfully present in one another's lives to start. We would share celebrations. We would share grief together. We would bring the health and the hope 
available in Jesus' promises to bear on one another's lives. We would pray for each other. We would read the Bible together. We would look at each other with a heaven's eyes, heaven's eyes view, which is just a little higher up than a bird's eye view. And we would say what is true about each other, whether we can see it ourselves or not. So it's sometimes hard to know yourself very well, and other people can even see you more clearly than you can see yourself. So we would say to one another, you're an amazing mom and dad. Keep it up. You, you know, you are an encouraging and loving friend. You're a gift to the people around you. You might not see it in your life, but you are. We would say, do you see the ways that the kingdom of God has been at work in and through you? Do you realize how far he's taking you over the last year? How, how he's spiritually growing you up? We would point one another to the truth of heaven that is already here. We would also be faithfully present in our vocations and our callings. All of us fill our days with very different tasks and projects and work. But whatever it is that you do, it's all part of God's world. So you're stewards of his creativity, of his beauty and his complexity. You're organizing his world. You're filling it up with treasure. You're protecting others. You're nurturing others. You're creating ideas or wealth or content that adds to the value of the place that you've been placed. So to be faithfully present is to see our work itself as a calling, to figure out how to connect the lines between what we do eight to five with the, the kingdom, the heavenly kingdom that God's established here, to do it with joy. And as surely as Daniel, as God called Daniel to Babylon, he has called you to your vocation here. You're not here on accident. He wants you exactly where he has you to do the work he has before you with diligence, excellence, and faithfulness. Lastly, we'll be, we can be faithfully present in our spheres of influence. Um, in some ways, the church's calling is to be a faithful presence in a world of absence. Now, it's hard at first sight to see the absence and the poverty of a place like this. It's very wealthy. But with wealthy places often comes a poverty of relationships, of deep, life-giving community. And it's, it's hard to see that, um, that we have an absence of beauty because we live in one of the most beautiful places in all of creation. But there's an absence of relationship here with our creator. There are so many people who don't have a life-giving relationship with the one who made all the beauty we came here to enjoy. So God asks us to enter into relationships with an eye for people's needs and poverties, not to exploit them, but to enter them and offer the gift of his presence. This is actively listening to other people, hearing where they're coming from, their, their beliefs that are different than ours, seeking to understand. And this is looking for places of hurt and emptiness where we can bring care and joy. How can we be a faithful presence of God's grace for our valley? Far from answering all of these questions. And honestly, I can't answer them for you anyway. This is part of the beauty of the church is we all go out with this calling and then we figure out how it seeps into our everyday life that we have been called to live. Jesus is faithful to you. His promises will come true. He's present with you. You are never alone, always loved and always safe. Believing this in this place at this time it isn't fancy, okay? It's not epic. It's not always going to feel uh, spiritually and emotionally epic. But over the years, as we breathe in 
and breathe out the promises of God, he will create a faithful presence for his grace here at this church. He will build his church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. His kingdom will expand and it will bring the love and the care and the grace and the hope of the gospel to more and more people. That's our calling as people and that's our calling as a church. I would love for you all to join us in that mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, uh, for your servant, Daniel, and his life, his testament to you, his faithful presence. Pray that we would emulate him by trusting you and looking to the hope that only you provide. He was a man who was on his knees day in and day out, looking for the grace of you, God. Pray that you would create in us a longing and a hope for the same thing. Help us look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us cling to him for life. And as we do, go out into the world and bring that life to others. We ask this in your name.